Please join me in prayer. Lord, we come before you this morning and uh, and we want to worship you. And we know that in your scripture you tell us our whole life, Lord, is an act of worship. Sometimes that seems like a really daunting task, Lord. I mean, I guess I should just speak for myself. There's some very unshining moments. But I want to follow you. I want to honor you, glorify you. Help me to do that, Lord. Help us to do that as your people. And so as we come in the midst of worship and uh, during this time where we take tithes and offerings, Lord, sometimes kicking and screaming, it's an act of surrender. And maybe this area is the hardest, or maybe it's our time, Lord. Giving our time, maybe that's the hardest. I don't know. They're both difficult. It doesn't feel like we have enough of them. So help us to defy that, Lord, as an act of faith, knowing that you provide and you can do big things with just very, very little. So even if we're just bringing a little bit of us this morning, Lord, we pray for that miracle of faith, that you would multiply it. Multiply it in our own lives. Multiply it in your kingdoms, uh, for your kingdom's sake. Multiply it in this world, Lord. We pray this in your powerful name. Amen. Well, I, I wanted to say for those uh, hello to those of you who are joining us at home. We're we're still kind of experimenting with our our new fancy microphone in the back that hopefully uh, isn't just giving you the voices on stage, but actually helps you hear like you're sitting here with us. It is a priority that this isn't just a, a, a presentation this morning. It's something that we get to participate in, and that's how life is with God in it. Uh, we've been in the midst of a. Uh, sermon series and, and celebrating really not just this resurrection today, but also marking, uh, you know, Easter is the end of the Lenten season. And a lot of us have decided to fast or give something up during the season of Lent. And that's just a small way for us to be reminded of the sacrifice that Jesus has made for us. And I do this almost every year. It's always really helpful for me. But the thing I give up is listening to the radio when I drive. 
Okay, I, I know that sounds lame, right? Dan, you should give up you know, some sort of food or whatever. But it, it's really, I take tons of short trips. I don't have to commute a long time, praise the Lord, to the east side or Seattle or wherever. But I do tons of little trips throughout the day around North Bend, the Snoqualmie Valley. And so I, I, I listen to the radio all the time. I like music. And it's that like impulse to turn it on that reminds me like, oh, I'm going to sit here in silence. I'm going to say a quick prayer, whatever it is. Uh, it's good. And so this morning, I got in my, my car to drive here, and I thought, oh, it's Easter. Like, I can listen to the radio. And I hadn't, I hadn't put any thought, you know, I should have, like, had a playlist or something, right? To find, no, just like, oh, that's comforting and good. Drove all the way here. I'm actually dreaming about it driving home now. <laughs> but this next season that we enter into after Lent is called Eastertide which uh, it's just like the tide, you know, it kind of rolls in and slowly rolls back. And um, next week, we're beginning a new sermon series called Encountering Jesus. And the idea here is that we're still on a journey with Christ. And uh, this didn't end, you know, it wasn't Resurrection Day, Sunday, and then just, you know, the disciple, everything was done. No, there was this, that was just the start of the journey. And next week, Phil Manili is going to be preaching on one of his favorite topics, he told me. So this is going to be good. It's on doubt and faith. And so we're going to kind of look at different encounters that people have with Jesus. In this case, Thomas, who's nicknamed Doubting Thomas. You know, poor guy forever is labeled as Doubting Thomas. He just, you know, he was just curious, right? If I don't see this with my own eyes, I'm not going to believe it. Uh, so Phil's going to uh, preach to us about faith and doubt. Our current series wraps up today. It's about prayer. Prayer is essential for people of faith and as followers of Christ. We have a very rich tradition of prayer passed down through God's people, Israel, on through generation after generation of Christians modeled by Jesus himself. And we began this journey learning that Jesus prays uh, all the time, but especially when he's on the go. Jesus led an incredibly busy life, just like us. 2,000 years later. And it always seems like he's on the move somewhere. And we see in his life both the merging of lots of daily activity and a regular practice, a regular rhythm of prayer. So maybe our attitude towards busyness, our attitude towards prayer could be more like his. And we see in Jesus that instead of squeezing more prayer into his already busy life, he kind of took the opposite approach. He squeezed more life into and around his prayers. And if we can start there, we're, we're going to get somewhere. We moved on the next week to talk about Jesus prays for us. The technical word for it is he intercedes, which means that you speak for someone else, or you speak to someone on behalf of someone else. And we know that's what Christ is doing for us right now with God. He's interceding for us. The third lesson, third week, Jesus prays authentically that our attitude in prayer, especially that of humility, is critical. Lesson three, Jesus prayed for harvest workers that in a time where the kingdom of God requires all hands on deck, it's not just a select few that are called to serve. And then if you want to be a kingdom influencer among your family, friends, and acquaintances, that's just what God wants you to be. Then we learned about praying shamelessly. Followers of Jesus have to understand who we're talking to. We keep praying not to overcome God's reluctance to answer our prayer. 
because we know God is a good gift giver. He's going to hear and answer. And then last week, Matt shared with us that Jesus prays all night, that when we commit to prayer, seeking God's guidance, surrendering to it all, we align ourselves with his activity and his will. I was really impressed this morning with the piano handoff that we witnessed. Did you, did you catch that? That, that? that was Matt, for those of you that don't know him, uh, handing off to Danny. I'm just going to say that's the first time that's ever happened in church. Uh, right? right? Um, but Matt last week was sharing a story about how he um, lived in Montana. He was a, served uh, two churches out there, one church plant, was very burned out, uh, ended up back in the Seattle area, and was just kind of at the end of it, like, God, I'm done with ministry. And he spent a very sleepless night kind of praying through it and finally decided, yeah, I'm out. And like the next day, he started getting phone calls and emails and invitations uh, to help out with different things. Uh, And so he kind of took that as like, all right, I guess I'm not done with ministry. And when we open our eyes to see what God is doing out there and in our life, the goal is that we align ourselves with it. My temptation is always the opposite. Like, here, here's, here's what I want to do, God. Will you bless it? But to, to flip that around and to see what God is up to and align ourselves, that's what we want to do. Over and over again, we see that Jesus prayed. And if we read between the lines of Scripture, he prayed a lot, even on the cross. And today, we're going to learn why. So here's our reading for this morning, or one of our readings for this morning. It comes from Matthew 27. Verses 45 through 50. This is Jesus dying on the cross. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, He's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. So this, of course, is the dramatic end of Jesus' life. In the last words spoken, Even the people present couldn't agree on exactly what he said. And it's surprising that he could say it in a loud voice. I mean, he was in agony. He was suffering lots of blood loss and had for many hours. Uh, He's very likely super dehydrated, struggling to breathe. So his words were a little difficult to understand, maybe a bit garbled even. Someone runs to get him a drink. Jesus has something to say. Some bystanders there at that moment thought he was calling Elijah, the prophet of Israel that was expected to turn around the time of of the Messiah. And others recognized that he was saying something else, that he was perhaps quoting a line from the Psalms. No doubt, some of you here this morning are probably wondering, isn't this Easter, Dan? What gives with Jesus dying on the cross, that was for Friday, Good Friday. I thought we'd talk about resurrection. Don't worry, I'll get there eventually. Set your clock for another hour and we'll be be good to go. 
The glory of Christ's resurrection starts with the misery he suffered on the cross. And Jesus, Jesus saw it coming. You know, the important piece of this is a backstory. After the Last Supper, which was celebrated on Thursday night, Jesus and his disciples headed out, uh, out of Jerusalem, out of the city, towards their lodging, which was in uh, a place called Bethany, little village outside of town. And they were staying there with their friends, Lazarus, Mary, Martha. It was their home. And this meant that they very likely crossed something, a, a very significant geological feature. It's called the Kindron Valley. We've got a, a picture that I want to put up here uh, for you. I've never been to Israel, so, you know, this is stuff that I've learned and people have told me about. But they would have started, you know, the Temple Mount's on one side. That's the old city of Jerusalem, the current city of Jerusalem. Uh, and, and they would have had to cross this pretty deep ravine and then... Uh, up on the other side, the Mount of Olives would have been where they were headed. Like Bethany, the village, is, is over that hill. And so, you know, that's a, you're, you're huffing and puffing by the time you make your way down there. And this is all kind of filled in. There used to be a stream that ran through there, but, you know, it, it hasn't probably run for a really long time. They diverted the water flow. So it's even kind of filled in. In Jesus' day, it would have gone even deeper. And uh, this would have been like a 40, 50-minute walk so in North Bend terms, imagine that you're, you're standing on Little Sigh. You can even almost see it, although it was raining earlier. And you're going you're gonna to go down Little Sigh and across to Big Sigh and up to an equal height on the other side. I'm thinking in my mind, that's going to take you 40, 50 minutes. That's what we're talking about. So where were they going? Well, let's turn to Mark 14, verses 32 through 36. They went to a place called Gethsemane. Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here. Keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba. Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Take this cup from me. What's Jesus talking about? Well, Jesus knows the end is near. He knows uh, that time is short and ask God if possible to let this hour pass. He's saying, God, can you get me out of this? He's well aware that the high priest, the religious leaders, are out to get him. This slow, simmering conflict that's been between Jesus and the hierarchy is about to boil over. It was no secret that the religious elite, who really were among, if not the most powerful people in the land, uh, they didn't like Jesus. They didn't like his tone. They didn't like his miracles. They didn't like what he did, how he broke the rules kind of in their face. Uh, they just didn't like him. They wanted to get rid of him. And so attending this Passover feast in Jerusalem for Jesus and his disciples was quite a risk. Jesus knew it. The 12 disciples knew it. The wider group of his followers knew it. And Jesus keeps dropping hints, saying, the Son of Man, which is code word for himself, has to be handed over and die. Just the week before, Jesus was at Simon the leper's house. And by the way, how would you like to be immortalized in history as Simon the leper, right? 
Oh man, the poor guy. Uh, while they were at Simon's house, Mary anointed Jesus' feet with expensive perfume. By expensive, I mean like $50,000 in today's money. And you're thinking, what? Can you really buy perfume that expensive? I have no idea. You probably can, right? And if you can, I'm going to be the first to put that on the market. It's got bobcat fur and Douglas fur bark. I don't know. It's very rare. And the point I'm trying to make is this perfume, $50,000, extremely rare. Would have been a year's wages. And so it's basically dumped on Jesus' feet. Judas, who we know, complained, saying, we should sell that and give the money to the poor. But the writer of the book of John is like, uh, before you think that there's any kind of altruism there, there's not. Jesus, Judas was just greedy. He, he, wanted to, he wanted to help himself to some of those proceeds. He didn't care anything for the four, poor. And so Jesus says in John 12, 7, Leave her alone. It was intended that she would save this perfume for the day of my burial. You'll always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. This is foreshadowing. Jesus dropping hints. Jesus is perceptive. Abba, Father, take this cup from me. God, can you get me out of this? Jesus sees the end is near. Do you know what else he probably sees? While he's praying in Gethsemane, he probably sees the people who are coming to arrest him. They would have left from the Temple Mount on one side. And you know, it's dark. There's no electrical lights. They would have had torches. He probably could have seen them coming the whole 40 or 50 minutes that it took them to get there. Phil Manili was describing this to me earlier this week. It's pretty stunning. You know, think if you're Jesus. This is your last chance to escape. Is he going to stay? Or is he just going to quietly disappear over the hill into his friend's house? What would you do? Well, Jesus, Jesus prays. Abba, Father, take this cup from me. When he's deeply distressed, when he's troubled, Jesus prays. What do you do when you're deeply distressed or troubled? You get more anxious? Maybe you have another drink? Maybe you withdraw? What can we learn here from Jesus? Well, Jesus reaches out to some friends. I mean, this is really good, right? I'm distressed. I mean, Charlie, he tells them this. He reaches out to people who know him and love him. So good. He tells Peter, James, and John, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay awake with me. Watch and pray. And then what happens? They fell asleep. And just so we're all clear, all right, I mean, they were with Jesus. Jesus did this a lot, the whole all-night prayer thing. So I'm sure they're like, okay, here he goes again. But just so that we're all clear, if someone ever says that to you or similar, you start asking a lot of questions. Tell me more. What do you mean by distressed and troubled? Uh, are you thinking of doing anything? Dot, dot, dot. These are questions that we ask when people say they're feeling alone and distressed. It's not nap time. You don't leave them alone. Poor Jesus is literally abandoned by his friends. They fall asleep in his hour of need. And by the way, can you imagine how they must have felt about this later? 
my last moments with my friends, I, he asked me to just sit up with him, and I, I missed it. I, I, I mean, in my line of work as a pastor, I deal with lots of people suffering grief who've lost loved ones. I've been through that experience myself. And if your last memory with that loved one isn't a positive one, oh, man, it's crushing, brutal. For Jesus, he's got one disciple who only God knows where he is, selling him out to the high priest. He can see him coming in the distance. His closest disciple and friend, Peter, he knows that by the morning he's going to deny that he even knows Jesus. Everyone else surrounding Christ evaporates like vapor, at least everyone who was a guy. Did you ever notice that the 12 disciples, who we all put on a pedestal for good reason as followers of Jesus, have you ever noticed that they're non-existent from the story here from now through the resurrection? We don't see the disciples again until they're found hiding behind locked doors on Easter morning. I mean, so would I, right? They're, they're scared. But you know who is there through the crucifixion to the resurrection? Women. It was disciples of Jesus who happened to be women. The Gospel of Mark devotes a whole paragraph describing the women present at the crucifixion. That's very purposeful. You know, Jesus defied many social conventions of his day. I mean, that's why they were out to kill him. He did it to empower both men and women to inherit the keys to God's kingdom. And the 12 disciples, they don't look so good here. But before we judge them too harshly, we should search our own hearts. I bet if we're honest with ourselves, we probably recognize that that potential to not pay attention, to take things for granted, to maybe even sell others out, that exists in us too. Or even the times that we've failed and disappointed others, you know, meaningful relationships with people means that you have the capacity to hurt and be hurt by them. And Jesus understands us, that experience. He understands that deeply. And Jesus wants you and me to know that even he can redeem and heal you too. And so Jesus was deeply distressed and troubled. Why? Because we live in a fallen world. We're broken people. And if Jesus is our rescuer, our deliverer, our savior, you know, many theologians believe that at this moment here in the garden, the weight of humanity, all our sin, all our pain, is starting to settle on Jesus' shoulders. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. It's the devil's opportune time to attack, to tempt Jesus. You see those torchlights? We'll just exit stage right, Jesus. Instead, Jesus prays. He prays to his Abba. It's the only instance we have in Scripture of Jesus addressing God as Abba. But it's clear, because we're still talking about it 2,000 years later, that the early church retained his practice. Abba is an Aramaic term, a language of the day. For father, it's a familiar term, a warm, kind of endearing way of saying dad or dear father, papa. This is how Jesus addresses God. 
He does it because God's a good God who listens and cares just as good as any human dad would do. Abba, Father, it's a little bit of a contrast to what Jesus says on the cross, isn't it? Here in Gethsemane, Jesus pleads for his father to get me out of this. Less than 24 hours later, he's hanging on the cross shouting, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So it's a fair question to ask. What happened? Well, it's understandable from Jesus' perspective. God's own son, captured, condemned, on trumped-up charges, savagely beaten, publicly mocked, humiliated, then executed by crucifixion. Crucifixion, one of the most barbaric means of death in history. It's usually reserved for the worst of the worst, criminals who are traitors, leaders of rebellions. It was meant to be public. You know, they could have offed Jesus in a quiet sort of way, off to the side, some poison, a little, you know, nighttime attack. No one would have known, but they didn't want that. They wanted it public. They wanted it to be humiliating. Crucifixion didn't bring a fast death. It was meant to be slow and painful. Basically, a person is slowly asphyxiating. Mostly, it took hours. Sometimes, it took days. All spent in agony. So maybe it's no surprise that a person near death experiencing horrific pain would pray and cry out to God. But what is surprising is how Jesus does it. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These aren't new words prayed by Jesus. He was quoting from the Psalms, Psalm 22 to be exact. This Psalm was written by King David a thousand years before this, except when Jesus prayed the prayer, the gospel writers are careful to note he didn't pray in David's language, Hebrew. He prayed it in his language, Aramaic. Aramaic was the language of the people. Language on the streets, in the playgrounds. Jesus personalized his prayer on the cross, still even managing to quote scripture. See, when we internalize God's written word, we can express what's deep within our soul. And for Jesus, he's not given a sermon. He really is asking a question. God, where are you? Why have you forsaken me? I was reading up on this during the week, and I discovered uh, a something written by a guy named Tyler Statton. He writes for the prayer app, Lectio 365. And I'll put this on the screen for you. Tyler says that Jesus wasn't analytically connecting biblical dots, but crying out across history, past, present, future, where are you, God? Jesus himself sharing in the experience we all know too well, the feeling of being forgotten by God. Being forgotten by God. Have you ever felt that way? Geez, Lord, where, out, where are you? Are you out there? Because things aren't going so well for me right now. Where are you, God? I know I've prayed that a few times in my life. As tempting as it is to shake your fist at God, it's more helpful, more healing to do what I believe Jesus is doing here. He's inviting God into his pain. He's very honestly sharing how he feels in this moment, asking a question, God, where are you? And he's letting God answer. Tyler Stanton continues offering a prayer. It's a good prayer. He says this, 
God, this morning as I reflect on Jesus' words from the cross, I invite you to bring to mind the places in my life where I feel forgotten by you. To show me those places of painfully felt absence. That you might fill them with your comforting presence. So if even Jesus prays when he feels abandoned or forgotten by God, so can we. In fact, it's precisely because Jesus felt this way that we know deep, deep down in our soul, God will never leave us. We can reach out to him, ask for help, for strength. We know circumstances might not instantly change, but we can. God can fill us with his spirit's power to endure some of the worst things. Even though nothing has changed on the outside, God can change us on the inside. Years later, the Apostle Paul was reflecting on the significance and impact of Jesus' death and his resurrection. He writes this in 2 Corinthians. For Christ's love compels us because we're convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for him and was raised again. We implore you, he continues on a little later in verse 20, on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. Paul's thinking about, well, if this, then what? If Christ sacrificed, then what does that mean for me? It's the sin of all humanity for all time being laid on Jesus. And it's for our sake. It's on our behalf so that you and I might be reconciled to God again. Even if it seems a bit shocking to our modern ears that Jesus would make a statement like this of being forsaken by God, let's not forget, he still says, my God, my God, my God. And for everyone standing there that day who would have had all the Psalms memorized because they did that, they would have instantly known that Psalm 22 expresses the desolation of a person who continues to trust in God. Here's verse 24. He has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. When you feel abandoned, forgotten, hopeless, alone, you pray as Jesus prayed. My God, my God, where are you? Let God answer that prayer. Our Heavenly Father hears us, cares for us, loves us. And because of what Jesus did on the cross that day, our sins have been atoned for, covered over. My iniquity has been healed. Our shame has been removed because Jesus died once and for all. Every time that we mess up, make a mistake, learn something about ourselves that isn't very nice, guess what? 
Jesus doesn't climb back up on the cross and go, okay, i got to die all over again. No. It was once for all, for all time. The mercy and grace of God is available for you and for me through Jesus. So guess what? None of this would make any difference at all. Jesus would have just died an early and tragic death. Who knows if we had even heard of him at all, unless, unless Easter Sunday happens, unless he comes back from the dead. Followers of Christ have celebrated Resurrection Day every year since it happened. It's a pretty good streak. It opened our eyes to the fact that Jesus wasn't just a really, really, really nice guy who had a really, really, really bad day. Oh, maybe, just maybe, he's the one who the Hebrew Scriptures foretold as Messiah. And that God's kingdom wasn't just a kingdom on earth, but a kingdom of heaven that's breaking in each and every day. And maybe, just maybe, Emmanuel, the with us God, is both a literal historical experience and one that continues still today. That's Jesus. He's the one we worship. So in just a moment, I'm going to close this in prayer. And I want to ask you, you know, as you think about Easter, think about resurrection, where in your own life do you need to experience the death to new life? Where do you need to experience resurrection? Maybe that's an odd question. I don't know. Here's another way of saying it. Where have you lost hope? Is there a part of you that feel like it, it died this last year? Maybe there's a relationship that no longer exists. Something. What can you do? We can pray as Jesus prays. You can invite God into your life. For anyone who's never formally welcomed Jesus into your life, do it today. Put it in your own words. Jesus, I, I want to follow you. Help me. Forgive me, heal me of everything. Be the leader of my life. Say that prayer. Start a new journey. Invite God into your situation and pain. You know, all of us can do that. No matter what we face or how we feel, we can express ourselves in prayer to God. We can ask him to be present and to help. And because of Jesus, he is. Please join me in prayer. Lord, we live in a world of instant gratification where things happen when we want them to. It's kind of a bad expectation, but we're all addicted to it. We know from Good Friday to Easter Sunday, there always seems like there's a waiting period between death and new life, between the end and resurrection. And discipleship, that act of following you always involves waiting. So, Lord, for those of us that maybe have never formally welcomed you into our lives, Lord, we pause for a moment and pray. God, won't you come in by your Spirit's presence and power and change lives? And, Lord, for those of us who've I have lost hope. 
suffering, grief, setbacks, regret, whatever it may be, Lord, we want to receive your forgiveness. We want to receive your healing. We want to receive your power and new life again. Won't you do that in us, Lord? And as we wait for the full and complete experience of Jesus' victory, we're going to worship. Because we're convinced that neither life nor death, height nor depth, anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.